In our previous episode, we covered Ronald Reagan's rise to the presidency, his unyielding opposition to communism, and his initial policies to confront the Soviet Union. But there was another side to Reagan, the side that feared nuclear war and desired to end its threat to the world. It was a side that few knew about, especially his critics. The story of Ronald Reagan's quest to build a new, safer world is the story of this episode of This American President. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Reagan's hardline rhetoric and military buildup pleased his supporters, but terrified his critics, especially those who felt that the best way to deal with the Soviets was to continue detente and sit down with them and forge agreements. After all, throughout the 1970s, both Republican and Democratic presidents had worked with the Soviets to try to reduce the threat of nuclear war. Reagan's critics were alarmed that his military buildup would provoke an arms race that would put the world in danger and bankrupt the federal budget. And it's true that the buildup cost a great deal of money. Democrats blamed defense spending and Reagan's tax cuts for increasing the budget deficit during the 1980s, although by then, entitlement spending, largely out of Reagan's hands and based on demographics, was taking up more and more of the total budget. When Reagan took office in the 1980s, Defense spending was a little over 20% of the total federal budget, and peaked during his tenure at almost 30%. Compare that to when it was over 50% of the budget under Democrat Presidents Harry Truman and John F. Kennedy. In Reagan's eyes, he was merely restoring the balance of years of neglect in the defense sector. Still, Reagan's critics feared that he might somehow accidentally trigger a nuclear war. They saw his verbal assaults on the Soviets, his buildup, his provocative flights to the Soviet border as destabilizing. They feared that his saber-rattling would lead to miscommunication and miscalculation. Some historians believe that the Soviets were very worried about Reagan, fearing that he was planning to defeat them in a nuclear war. Years later, we would find out that there were a number of close calls during the Reagan years. In the fall of 1983, Soviet radar reported that the United States had launched several ICBMs at the Soviet Union, 
the lieutenant colonel on duty at that moment could have reported an incoming American nuclear strike, possibly triggering a massive retaliation, but his gut told him that it was a false alarm. He believed that an American attack would be much larger. He was right. There were no missile launches. It was just a system error. Although the incident remained hidden for years, it gives a glimpse into just how delicate the situation was between the superpowers. A few months later, in November of 1983, NATO held a large exercise codenamed Able Archer. It featured a number of elements to simulate realism, so much so that the Soviets worried it may have been a hidden attempt to prepare for an actual war. The Soviets put their nuclear forces on alert. When the exercise ended, things calmed down, but again, it illustrated just how quickly miscues could lead to a potential crisis. It also showed how seriously Moscow took Reagan's threats. I mentioned earlier that the Soviets had deployed intermediate nuclear missiles in Europe while the Americans responded with their intended deployment of Pershing and cruise missiles. The standoff continued, and because of that standoff, as well as in response to Reagan's rhetoric, a new movement rose up in the United States called the Freeze Movement. The group was terrified of the prospect of nuclear war and called for the halting of all testing, development, and deployment of all nuclear weapons. The movement swept the nation, and it even held a demonstration in 1982 that involved over a million people. They got the signatures of over 2 million Americans. Polls even indicated that 72% of Americans supported their aims. Prominent citizens, many of whom were involved in Cold War strategy, like George Kennan and Avril Harriman, supported it, as did many scientists like Carl Sagan and Linus Pauling, and politicians like Walter Mondale and Ted Kennedy. Even Reagan's own daughter, Patty Davis, supported it and made appearances during the demonstrations. Reagan saw the nuclear freeze as unilateral disarmament, which would, quote, make this country vulnerable to nuclear blackmail. He argued that if America was to freeze its own nuclear weapons, it had no reason to believe the Soviets would do so as well, and they could be emboldened to further aggression. Many of Reagan's aides worried that the movement would destroy support for Reagan's anti-Soviet agenda. The freeze movement was powerful, and for many people in it, Reagan was a terrifying figure who could provoke nuclear Armageddon. What they didn't know was that Reagan was more sympathetic to their views than they ever realized. During the height of the movement, Reagan said the following in an April 1982 radio address. Today, I know there are a great many people who are pointing to the unimaginable horror of nuclear war. I welcome that concern. Those who've governed America throughout the nuclear age, and we who govern it today, have had to recognize that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So to those who protest against nuclear war, I can only say, I'm with you. Like my predecessors, it is now my responsibility to do my utmost to prevent such a war. No one feels more than I the need for peace. Reagan's desire to build up the military obscured the fact that he had another desire, to rid the world of the threat of nuclear weapons. In the same radio address, Reagan said the following, The current level of nuclear forces is too high on both sides. It must be the objective of any negotiations on arms control to reduce the numbers of nuclear weapons. Since World War II, the United States has attempted to get Soviet agreement to such reductions countless times. We began back when we alone had such weapons. We were never able to persuade the Soviet Union 
to join in such an understanding even when we propose turning all nuclear material and information over to an international body and when we were the only nation that had nuclear weapons. We're preparing a new arms reduction effort with regard to strategic nuclear forces and are already in negotiations in Geneva on intermediate-range missiles threatening Europe. Our objective in these talks is for the elimination of such missiles on the strategic nuclear forces. We will aim on those at substantial reductions on both sides, leading to equal and verifiable limits. We'll make every effort to reach an agreement that will reduce the possibility of nuclear war. If we can do this, perhaps one day we can achieve a relationship with the Soviet Union which doesn't depend upon nuclear deterrence to secure Soviet restraint. I invite the Soviet Union to take such a step with us, and I ask you, the American people, to support our efforts at negotiating an end to this threat of doomsday which hangs over the world. Thank you, and God bless you. Early in his presidency, Reagan said that he was hoping to reduce the number of nuclear weapons, both strategic, meaning the ones that can go from one continent to another, and the intermediate and medium-range ones, the ones being deployed in Europe. In fact, in November of 1981, Reagan made a bold proposal, called the Zero Option, for both sides to eliminate all intermediate and medium-range missiles from the European theater to end the standoff. To Reagan's critics, this proposal was absurd. They said that it was a cynical move by Reagan, since he knew the Soviets would never agree to such an agreement, and that he made the proposal as a way to give himself political cover, so that he could say that he tried to make an agreement without really meaning it. There was no way that Reagan, they thought, this right-wing cowboy was serious about reducing nuclear arms. But the evidence shows otherwise. Reagan actually abhorred nuclear weapons and was terrified of the prospect of nuclear war. Months into his presidency in 1981, he wrote personally to Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, saying, quote, All Americans share your concern over the threat to mankind in the age of nuclear weapons. I welcome your statement that the USSR is prepared for discussions with the United States on limiting strategic weapons. I have stated publicly that the United States is ready to undertake discussions with the USSR that would lead to genuine arms reductions. Reagan believed that nuclear war was too horrible to be contemplated. There was this false assumption that just because he was morally opposed to communism and wanted to beef up the defense budget, that he must be itching to start a nuclear war. He maintained that he felt a strong military was the way to deter enemies and therefore reduce the odds of conflict. Reagan had received briefings by DOD officials where he was told that in a nuclear conflict, 150 million Americans would be killed. He believed that there was no winning a nuclear war. In a ceremony on July 1983, Reagan said, quote, I pray the day will come when nuclear weapons no longer exist anywhere on Earth. In remarks on March 1985, Reagan said that nuclear war would be the, quote, greatest tragedy ever experienced by mankind in the history of mankind. No room should be left for doubt about a nuclear exchange. No one would win. Part of Reagan's fears came from his religious views. There's much evidence to indicate that Reagan was a religious man. He felt that God had spared his life during the assassination attempt for a higher purpose. 
A letter was recently found in which Reagan wrote to his dying father-in-law in 1982, urging him to put his faith in Jesus Christ. His faith also led him to think repeatedly about the end times mentioned in the Bible, about Armageddon. In 1982, Reagan told his deputy national security advisor, quote, This inexorable building of nuclear weapons on our side and the Russian side can only lead to Armageddon. We've got to get off the track. For him, nuclear weapons had biblical implications. Ever since the 1960s, the United States had accepted the construct known as Mutual Assured Destruction, or MAD. This construct, which Kennedy and Johnson's defense secretary, Robert McNamara, supported, stated that it was a good thing both sides had thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at each other and had plans to launch them in a massive attack. The fact that both posed very real existential threats to the other side was seen as a good thing because it was the most stable system of deterrence. As terrifying as this was, many people, realists included, supported this as necessary to prevent nuclear war from breaking out. Of course, the whole thing was a gamble because the threat of nuclear destruction meant that it was a very real possibility. Others were terrified about this prospect. As we noted earlier, miscalculation and false alarms could trigger a crisis or even war. This was the whole premise of the freeze movement. They wanted to reduce the threat of nuclear war by stopping the buildup. Reagan, as he said, really was with them. He hated MAD, and it wasn't just because of strategic reasons. He thought that risking all of humanity to save it was immoral. Reagan's Secretary of State George Shultz said that Reagan felt that MAD was, quote, morally abhorrent. In a speech at the Institute of Foreign Policy Analysis, Reagan noted the precarious nature of MAD, saying, quote, people who put their trust in MAD must trust it to work 100%, forever. No slip-ups, no mistakes. So Reagan made it a real objective of his administration to work with the Soviets to reduce the number of nuclear weapons, even while he was attacking it as the evil empire and attempting to undermine it geostrategically. This was codified in NSDD 75, which declared, quote, The U.S. will enter into arms agreements negotiations when they serve U.S. national security objectives. U.S. arms control proposals will be consistent with necessary force modernization plans and will seek to achieve balanced, significant, and verifiable reductions to equal levels of comparable armaments. In this sense, Reagan was following the model of many of his predecessors like Eisenhower, Kennedy, and Nixon. In our previous episodes, we saw how these men considered themselves anti-communists, but also believed that the threat of nuclear war made it an imperative to meet with the Soviets and try to curb the arms race for the sake of the peace of the world, and also to reduce the costs of nuclear weapons. You could call it a two-sided policy or a dual-track policy. They believed that communism was an evil system, but nuclear war would be so horrible that they had to work with an evil regime to stop it. Even an evil regime had an interest in the world not blowing up. On April 6, 1983, Reagan wrote in his diary that many of his advisors were against any kind of outreach to the Soviets. Quote, Some in the NSC staff are too hardline and don't think any approach should be made to the Soviets. I think I'm hardline and will never appease but I do want to try and let them see there is a better world if they'll show by deed they want to get along with the free world. 
These words would certainly have surprised those in the freeze movement. Reagan felt that the agreements from detente, like the SALT Treaty, had given the Soviets the chance to exceed the United States in military firepower and strategic positioning. But just because he was critical of some agreements with the Soviets didn't mean he was against any agreement with the Soviets. With his military buildup, his rollback policy, and a strong economy, Reagan felt that he would have the leverage to get the Soviets to join the U.S. in nuclear reductions on more favorable terms. It was a strategy he called, quote, building up to build down. To his critics, this was counterproductive. Wouldn't it just be better to do our part and reduce our nuclear stockpiles? Might this induce the Soviets to reduce theirs without us having to spend so much money? Reagan supporters responded that unilateral reduction would send a message to the Soviets that their buildup had forced us into reducing our stockpile, and it would embolden them. Either way, Reagan really wanted reductions in nuclear missiles, whether they were strategic or intermediate or medium-range weapons. Of course, actions speak louder than words. Those opposing Reagan would only believe that he wanted to reduce nuclear weapons if he actually did it, which arguably was fair. Until then, they still believed him to be the right-wing cowboy. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Finding a way out of MAD wouldn't be easy. The nuclear genie was out of the bottle, and billions of dollars depended on the industry. It would take a massive feat of creativity. But Ronald Reagan felt that ingenuity was part of America's DNA. He thought long and hard about it and felt that he had come up with a solution. The seeds for this solution were planted back in 1967, when then-Governor Reagan met with Edward Teller, one of the world's greatest physicists, who played a major role in the development of the hydrogen bomb. Teller had invited Reagan to the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Reagan asked Teller many questions about nuclear issues. Teller later said, quote, We showed him all the complex projects. He listened carefully and interrupted maybe a dozen times. Every one of his questions was to the point. He clearly comprehended the technology. Apparently, Teller had discussed finding alternative ways to use nuclear technology, like laser technology. 
The more famous event happened about a dozen years later in 1979, when Reagan was no longer governor of California, but gearing up for a run for the presidency. He visited the North American Aerospace Defense Command in the Cheyenne Mountains in Colorado. There, Reagan learned that the U.S. had no way to defend a nuclear attack on the site, a fact that shocked him. In decades past, the United States and the Soviets had explored many defense systems that would protect them from a nuclear missile strike, concepts that involved shooting down an incoming missile with some sort of projectile. There were fears, though, that these missile defense schemes could destabilize the Cold War, perhaps by triggering an arms race of new weapons that could defeat such a system, or provoking one side to attack the other before it could implement a defense system. As we saw in our Nixon episode, the U.S. and the Soviets signed an anti-ballistic missile treaty of 1972 that limited both sides to just two ballistic missile defense sites. And when MIRVs were created, multiple independent reentry vehicles, this led people to believe that missile defense sites were less effective since they could be overwhelmed by one missile unleashing multiple warheads. At any rate, Reagan saw a technological revolution occurring throughout the world, including in the United States. In his lifetime, he saw the United States split the atom and land on the moon. He saw it achieve incredible technological advancements in a short period of time. He also saw the rise of computing power and modern weaponry. He saw things that were once considered impossible come to fruition before anyone could have predicted. And he felt that this sense of ingenuity could work again, this time to rescue the world from the threat of nuclear weapons. It was an incredibly ambitious, some would say foolhardy goal, to bank on man's ingenuity to find a way out of the nuclear stalemate. But he felt that it was the only option to potentially stop nuclear war. So he came up with an idea called the Strategic Defense Initiative. On March 23, 1983, Reagan announced his plan to the American people. It was a plan that some of his own advisors didn't know anything about, and among those who did know, felt that it was a little bit crazy. If the Soviet Union will join with us in our effort to achieve major arms reduction, we will have succeeded in stabilizing the nuclear balance. Nevertheless, it will still be necessary to rely on the specter of retaliation, on mutual threat, and that's a sad commentary on the human condition. Wouldn't it be better to save lives than to avenge them? Are we not capable of demonstrating our peaceful intentions by applying all our abilities and our ingenuity to achieving a truly lasting stability? I think we are. Indeed, we must. After careful consultation with my advisors, including the Joint Chiefs of Staff, I believe there is a way. Let me share with you a vision of the future which offers hope. It is that we embark on a program to counter the awesome Soviet missile threat with measures that are defensive. Let us turn to the very strengths in technology that spawned our great industrial base and that have given us the quality of life we enjoy today. What if free people could live secure in the knowledge that their security did not rest upon the threat of instant U.S. retaliation to deter a Soviet attack, that we could intercept and destroy strategic ballistic missiles before they reached our own soil or that of our allies. I know this is a formidable technical task, one that may not be accomplished before the end of this century, 
Yet current technology has attained a level of sophistication where it's reasonable for us to begin this effort. It will take years, probably decades of effort on many fronts. There'll be failures and setbacks, just as there will be successes and breakthroughs. And as we proceed, we must remain constant in preserving the nuclear deterrent and maintaining a solid capability for flexible response. But isn't it worth every investment necessary to free the world from the threat of nuclear war? We know it is. I call upon the scientific community in our country, those who gave us nuclear weapons, to turn their great talents now to the cause of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. Tonight, consistent with our obligations under the ABM Treaty and recognizing the need for closer consultation with our allies, I'm taking an important first step. I am directing a comprehensive and intensive effort to define a long-term research and development program to begin to achieve our ultimate goal of eliminating the threat posed by strategic nuclear missiles. This could pave the way for arms control measures to eliminate the weapons themselves. We seek neither military superiority nor political advantage. Our only purpose, one all people share, is to search for ways to reduce the danger of nuclear war. This was one of the most remarkable speeches ever given by an American president. It was almost utopian in its vision. Reagan's description of SDI wasn't of an offensive weapon that could give the U.S. an advantage over the Soviets. Its purpose was to somehow render all nuclear weapons obsolete and lead to getting rid of the entire nuclear stockpile. It wasn't clear how this would be achieved, but Reagan was advocating for nuclear abolition. The idea of eliminating all nuclear weapons struck many as unrealistic. Besides, this was the kind of thing that you might expect from some left-wing activist. But Ronald Reagan? How could an anti-communist be proposing this? Critics inside and outside the United States thought Reagan was nuts. Some thought that it was a fantasy dreamt up by an elderly man who was losing his marbles. Others thought that it was some ploy to guarantee billions of dollars more for defense. Either way, they thought that it was a total waste of money that was being funneled toward defense at the expense of social programs. Ted Kennedy came up with the perfect pejorative for it. He called it, quote, Star Wars, named after the hit 1977 film. It was the perfect way to portray the whole program as fantasy or science fiction. The concept behind SDI hadn't fully been worked out. For any shield to render all nuclear weapons obsolete, it would likely require technologies far beyond what was possible at the time. Reagan himself admitted as much, and felt that it might be something that could take years if not decades. Concepts like particle beam and plasma weapons were being discussed. It would also require unprecedented computer power and sensors. Reagan wanted to emphasize the peaceful nature of what he was trying to do. SDI, with all of its lasers, could theoretically be an offensive system, but Reagan swore that it would be used only for defensive purposes. And Reagan came out with another surprise. He was willing to share SDI technology with the Soviets. In an interview with BBC in October of 1985, Reagan said as much. 
But what would be safer than if the two great superpowers, the two that have the great arsenals, both of us sat there with defensive weapons that ensured our safety against the nuclear weapons and both of us eliminated our But the Russians presumably would have to make their own SDI. You, you wouldn't offer it to them, would you, off the shelf? Why not? And I think this is something to be discussed at the summit as to uh, uh, what kind of an agreement we could make about in the event. I would like to say to the Soviet Union, we know you've been researching for this same thing longer than we have. We wish you well. If there couldn't be anything better than if both of us came up with it, but if only one of us does, then why don't we, instead of using it as an offensive means of having a first strike against the, anyone else in the world, why don't we use it to ensure that there won't be any nuclear strikes? Are you saying then, Mr. President, that uh, the United States, <coughs> if it were well down the road towards a, a proper SDI program, would be prepared to share its technology uh, with Soviet Russia, provided, of course, there were arms reductions and so on on both sides. That's right. There would have to be the reductions of offensive weapons. Again, this all shocked many of even Reagan's supporters. The idea that Reagan, the great anti-communist, would be willing to share this kind of powerful technology if it could be achieved with the Soviets was something that many would never have expected. Reagan's assurances that he really wanted peace didn't satisfy the critics. Many wondered, perhaps including the Soviets, whether Reagan really meant what he said about sharing SDI technology, as he said, to rid the world of nuclear danger. Sure, the U.S. might develop such a system and claim that it was for everyone, but in reality, some thought it must be a way for the U.S. to achieve superiority. And even if the United States somehow was able to field this technology and promise to share it with the Soviets, how would the Soviets know that the U.S. was really sharing it with them? What if the Americans installed some sort of kill switch that made the Soviets think that they had access to the technology too, but in reality, America secretly kept full control of the system? Reagan admitted that the details needed to be worked out. Critics believed that the entire thing was absurd and unworkable, but it did have its supporters, among them credible voices like Edward Teller, who believed that it could be a way out of the nuclear stalemate. And strangely enough, whether intended or not, SDI began yielding some interesting benefits for the Reagan administration. John Lewis Gaddis noted that it killed several birds with one stone, quote, in one speech, Reagan managed simultaneously to preempt the nuclear freeze movement, to raise the prospect of not just reducing but eliminating the need for nuclear weapons, to assert American technological preeminence, and by challenging the Soviet Union in an area in which it had no hope of being able to compete, to create the strongest possible incentive for Soviet leaders to reconsider the reasons for the competition in the first place. Gaddis observes that SDI had a political advantage. It allowed Reagan to claim that he was taking the boldest step to find a way out of the nuclear stalemate, not just through arms control or even a nuclear freeze, but by actually trying to eliminate all nuclear weapons. Reagan now claimed to be a bigger nuclear abolitionist than anyone in the freeze movement and anyone opposing his administration. 
Also, it may have given the United States a strategic advantage. The Soviets had no idea whether SDI worked. It likely didn't. But they couldn't know that for sure. After all, they had seen American technology do amazing things like beat them in the race to land on the moon. Many Soviet officials and American academics to this day claim that SDI didn't really affect anything, that the Soviets knew that it was unworkable. But it's not hard to believe that at least some of them thought that SDI might actually be possible. And if America could develop some sort of space-based system, even if it was far less ambitious than what Reagan wanted, it could still be a threat and a dangerous escalation of the arms race. And for the Soviet Union, increasingly strapped for cash, another arms race might bankrupt their entire system. There is evidence to show that the Soviets were alarmed by SDI. Now, the Soviets had a long history of developing a missile defense system of their own going back to the 1960s, using a missile called the Galosh. In the late 1970s, the Soviets upgraded it. By the 80s, they had spent tens of billions of dollars on it. But this was a limited system that mainly guarded Moscow and could probably be overwhelmed. Reagan was now challenging them at a whole other level. Soviet Foreign Minister Alexander Bestmernik said that the Soviets were, quote, enormously frightened by SDI and, quote, made us realize we were in a very dangerous spot. It makes sense. As we discussed earlier, the Soviets were spending billions of dollars and massive chunks of their total budget on defense. With SDI, there was now the possibility that they would have to spend billions more just to keep up. Otherwise, if the U.S. could field space-based weapons, the Soviets would be left behind. It seemed that SDI, as far-fetched as it sounded, might give Reagan leverage over the Soviets. And that wasn't all. By 1984, the economic recovery was being felt throughout the nation. His victory in Grenada, the drop in unemployment and inflation, and the overall resurgence in American confidence propelled Reagan to a massive re-election victory over former Vice President Walter Mondale in November of 1984. Reagan won 49 out of 50 states. With that, Reagan had a clear mandate and could further implement his ambitious goals to roll back communism and eliminate nuclear weapons. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. As Reagan was sworn in for a second term in 1985, he continued to look for opportunities to engage Soviet leadership. Unfortunately, Soviet leaders kept dying on him. Back in November of 1982, Leonid Brezhnev died at the age of 75. His successor was the 68-year-old Yuri Andropov. A year and a half later, he was dead. Then came the 72-year-old Konstantin Chernyenko, 
a man who had already suffered through years of emphysema and had a bad heart. In 1983, Chernyenko missed three months of work due to bronchitis, pleurisy, and pneumonia. And yet, in 1984, he was selected to lead the Soviet Union. People said that the Soviets were led by a gerontocracy, ruled by the elderly. John Lewis Gaddis described Chernyenko as, quote, an enfeebled geriatric so zombie-like as to be beyond assessing intelligence reports, alarming or not. By the end of 1984, Chernyenko was permanently hospitalized. He was dragged out of his hospital bed for two televised events in 1985, but his haggard appearance shocked the nation. He fell into a coma and died on March 10, 1985. He was the third Soviet leader to die in less than three years. Andrei Gromyko had had enough. Among the members of the Soviet Politburo, Gromyko was an elder statesman. He served as Soviet foreign minister all the way back during the years of Eisenhower and Khrushchev. By then, he was 75 years old, and he decided that the Soviets needed an infusion of fresh blood. He backed a relatively young rising star, the 54-year-old Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. Back in 1984, Yuri Andropov said, as he was lying on his deathbed, that he wanted Gorbachev to succeed him. At the time, the Soviet leadership still felt that Gorbachev was too young, so Chernyenko was selected instead. But by 1985, it seemed time to get out of the gerontocracy, especially if the Soviet Union was to compete with the resurgent United States. Gorbachev represented a new generation of Soviet leadership. He was young, energetic, and charismatic. He had more of a human touch. He had a better handle on public opinion than his predecessors. When visiting New York City, he got out of his car to shake hands with spectators, showing that he could forge a personal connection with the public. He was, at least officially, a committed Marxist and Leninist. No surprise, of course, since he was now at the top of the Soviet system. He affirmed in his book Perestroika, quote, We are motivated by the ideas of the 1917 October Revolution, the ideas of Lenin. He said of Lenin, quote, his very image is an undying example of lofty moral strength, all-around spiritual culture, and selfless devotion to the cause of the people and to socialism. Lenin lives on in the minds and hearts of millions of people. Gorbachev read the classic works of communism and spoke of Lenin with reverence. But unlike his predecessors, Gorbachev was a reformer. He worked his way up the party hierarchy and government and wasn't in denial about the problems of the system. Perestroika meant restructuring, and it referred to the restructuring of the Soviet system. His ultimate goal was to revitalize the Soviet Union for the 21st century. He wanted to match the United States in industrial output by the year 2000, and he didn't intend to introduce greater market forces, but to make the planned economy more efficient. He saw his programs as a way to achieve the next stage of socialism, saying, quote, Perestroika is a jump forward in the development of socialism. Gorbachev had his work cut out for him. His reputation as a reformer raised hopes in the Western world. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher sensed this when she met him in 1984, later saying, quote, I am cautiously optimistic. I like Mr. Gorbachev. We can do business together. Reagan was a bit more wary. 
he mentioned to the U.S. ambassador to the Soviet Union, Arthur Hartman, quote, Gorbachev will be as tough as any of their leaders. If he wasn't a confirmed ideologue, he never would have been chosen. Gorbachev initiated a number of campaigns upon taking office. He attempted to reform the bureaucracy, hoping to reduce waste and corruption. He sacked corrupt and underperforming officials. He also wanted to address the rampant alcoholism in Soviet society, so he worked to reduce the amount of alcohol produced in the country. Some of these programs were more successful than others. The anti-alcohol program was not particularly wise. It had unintended consequences, predictably leading to a bootleg market and the loss of the equivalent of $100 billion in the Soviet economy. Gorbachev also decided to escalate the Soviet war in Afghanistan. Although the war had turned into a quagmire, he hoped that one more push might be able to secure victory, so he initiated a surge of troops toward that end. This happened to coincide with the Reagan administration increasing its efforts to aid the Mujahideen against the Soviets. In the spring of 1985, Reagan approved NSDD-166, much of which remained classified for years. But soon, the United States was sending even more arms, including rockets, grenades, and anti-aircraft missiles. For Reagan, Gorbachev's initial actions seemed to indicate a desire to escalate the Cold War competition rather than resolve it. And hardliners in Reagan's staff felt that Gorbachev was just the more charismatic face of what was still a ruthless and tyrannical regime. But there's one thing that Gorbachev had in common with Reagan, something that could bring them together. His fear of nuclear war and his desire to end the arms race. Gorbachev, like Reagan, abhorred the possibility of nuclear war. On his first day as the leader of the Soviet Union, Gorbachev said, quote, Never before has such a terrible danger hung over the heads of humanity as in our times. The only rational way out of the current situation is for opposing forces to agree immediately to stop the arms race, above all, the nuclear arms race on Earth's surface, and not allow it into outer space. Gorbachev's domestic goals and his hopes for reducing the arms race were interconnected. After all, the Soviets were funneling so much of their budget and GDP into the military. If he could curb the arms race, he wouldn't have to spend so much money on defense and could focus on his programs to revitalize the Soviet economy. Reagan's buildup and his SDI program promised to make the arms race even more costly and dangerous. Gorbachev wanted to find a way to stop it. But first, they had to meet. Plans were drawn up for a summit between Reagan and Gorbachev to take place in Geneva, Switzerland in November of 1985. It would be Reagan's first meeting with the new Soviet leader, the first time an American and Soviet leader met since Carter and Brezhnev. Reagan went into the Geneva summit hoping for real progress on arms control. Some of his staff advised him to make no concessions, but Reagan was realistic. One of his national security aides, Jack Matlock, later commented on Reagan's approach to negotiations. Quote, I think the president was an experienced and almost natural negotiator. A lot of people forget that when I say he was an actor, he was also a chairman of the Screen Actors Guild, and he negotiated contracts with the studios. 
One of the points that he would make to us at times, particularly when we had people on the staff who insisted we get to 100% of our demands of the Soviet Union, he would say, quote, look, when we went to the studios, we'd be happy to get just 80%. Finally, we go to Geneva with the sober realization that nuclear weapons pose the greatest threat in human history to the survival of the human race, that the arms race must be stopped. We go determined to search out and discover common ground where we can agree to begin the reduction, looking to the eventual elimination of nuclear weapons from the face of the earth. It is not an impossible dream that we can begin to reduce nuclear arsenals, reduce the risk of war, and build a solid foundation for peace. The summit began on November 19, 1985. In high-stakes encounters like these, everything mattered, especially appearances. Some American advisors worried that the young, energetic Gorbachev might outshine or outsmart the older Reagan. Geneva was cold in November. There was a discussion as to whether Reagan should greet Gorbachev in an overcoat. The concern was that if he came out all bundled up, he might look fragile or overwhelmed. The decision was made for him to forego the coat and just come out in a suit. When the two men met, Reagan did come out in a suit while Gorbachev wore the coat. Stuff like this might seem trivial, but think of how important appearance has become in politics going back to when Kennedy debated Nixon on television in the 1960 election. As Reagan greeted Gorbachev, he looked fresh and confident, every bit the Soviet leader's equal. When asked if Reagan was nervous during the summit, Matlock recalled, quote, I don't think Reagan was nervous at all. I think Nixon was very nervous when he was going into the meeting with Brezhnev before their 1972 summit. I was there for that, and I actually watched him sweat beforehand. I was almost ashamed as an American to have a president who was nervous about meeting with someone like Brezhnev. But no, Reagan was not nervous, and on the contrary, quite relaxed and confident. During their meetings at Geneva, Reagan and Gorbachev developed a rapport and realized that they had a shared interest in bringing peace to the world through cooperation between the superpowers. Reagan said to Gorbachev, quote, The United States and the Soviet Union are the two greatest countries on Earth, the superpowers. They are the only ones who can start World War III, but also the only two countries that could bring peace to the world. Reagan tried to forge a personal connection with the Soviet leader, saying they both came from, quote, rural hamlets in the middle of their respective countries. Their first one-on-one -on -one meeting lasted a half an hour longer than scheduled. When an aide from the American side asked Secretary of State Schultz if they should interrupt the meeting to get on with the schedule, Schultz was incredulous. He didn't want to interfere with what was happening and told the aide, quote, if you think so, then you shouldn't have this job. It also became clear that both men were interested in reducing the threat of nuclear weapons, maybe even getting rid of them somehow. They both affirmed their abhorrence of nuclear war and signed a statement that declared, quote, nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Despite these promising developments, there were sharp disagreements. They argued over which side had the moral high ground. Reagan brought up the Soviets' aggressive promotion of socialism around the world and its desire to create a, quote, one-world communist state. Gorbachev countered by referring to the problems that the United States had, 
like drug use and racial divisions, implying that it should focus on itself than other countries' flaws. Still, there was a great deal of optimism that these two men, Reagan and Gorbachev, could work to end the arms race. But one thing stood in the way. SDI. Some of Reagan's advisors feared that he would insist on keeping SDI, and that might preclude the possibility of an agreement. And that's exactly what happened. Reagan refused to budge on SDI. He had written in his diary back in September, quote, I won't trade our SDI off for some Soviet offer of weapons reductions. At the conference, Gorbachev spent much of his time with Reagan arguing against SDI, saying he would only negotiate on reducing offensive nuclear weapons if America abandoned it. He said that SDI would be the start of an arms race in space. The two men began talking past each other. Reagan continued to insist that SDI would not be an offensive weapon, that it would just be defensive. He also emphasized his intention to share SDI technology with the Soviets. He said that SDI worked hand-in-hand with the elimination of nuclear weapons. It was a form of insurance. If the major superpowers destroyed their nukes, SDI would take care of any rogue nation that kept a secret arsenal and tried to use it to blackmail the superpowers. But none of this convinced Gorbachev. Gorbachev's vehement insisting on eliminating SDI, something that would only grow stronger in the next few years, seems to indicate that he viewed it as a major threat to the Soviet Union. Whether it was intended or not, and despite all of the criticisms, SDI gave Reagan quite a bit of negotiating leverage. Hello everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. At that point, things were a stalemate. The summit lasted two days. When Gorbachev got home, he had less than stellar things to say about his American counterpart. He lamented that, quote, that man does not seem to hear what I am trying to say. He also said Reagan had, quote, crude primitivism, caveman views, and intellectual impotence. Gorbachev may have really felt that way about Reagan, but there was a sense that the two men had broken the ice. There seemed to be more good feelings than the Soviet leader wanted to admit. Schultz later wrote, quote, The personal chemistry was apparent. The ease and relaxed attitudes toward each other, the smiles, the sense of purpose, all showed through. When he got back, Reagan seemed to believe that he could get through to Gorbachev another way, perhaps through a spiritual bond. He told his aide, Mike Deaver, quote, I honestly think he believes in a higher power. Reagan believed Gorbachev was of a, quote, different breed than his predecessors. It appeared that Geneva had laid the foundation for future progress. Just a few weeks later, on January 15, 1986, Gorbachev announced a bold new proposal to abolish all nuclear weapons by the year 2000. 
His aide, Anatoly Cherneyev, said that, quote, in order to get this country on solid ground, we have to relieve it of the burden of the arms race. It was also a political move. Andrei Grachev, a foreign policy advisor in the Soviet Union, said, quote, the proposal was intended to be revolutionary enough to satisfy the ambitions of the young party leaders while being unrealistic enough to be rejected in the West. It was designed to give the Soviets the moral high ground and expose the Americans as obstructionists to nuclear abolition. Gorbachev was, however, starting to reorient Soviet foreign policy in a different direction, one that seemed to turn away from previous communist dogma and toward a new realism. In the spring of 1986, Gorbachev spoke of the United States to the Politburo, the executive committee of the Communist Party, saying, quote, Reality is such that we cannot do anything without them, nor they without us. We live on one planet, and we cannot preserve peace without America. He also seemed to question a major doctrine of communist thinking, that capitalism was unstable and bound to fail. He said, quote, the present stage of the general crisis does not lead to any absolute stagnation of capitalism and does not rule out possible growth of its economy and the mastery of new scientific and technical trends. Gorbachev seemed to be acknowledging that the capitalist world was actually doing quite well. One wonders how much of the economic resurgence under President Reagan had anything to do with this. Reagan didn't respond to Gorbachev's proposal. His staff was planning for a new summit between the two men. Reagan was now pondering sharing SDI, not just with the Soviets, but perhaps the United Nations. As James Graham notes, quote, No U.S. leader but Ronald Reagan could have gotten away with saying these things. Who could conceive of a more extraordinary prospect than an American president sharing a nuclear shield with the Soviet Union? Someone who wanted to vest America's national security in the United Nations, perhaps while the world embarked upon eliminating nuclear weapons. It was all the more remarkable, considering Reagan had called the Soviets the evil empire just a few years earlier. In April of 1986, an event happened that brought home the horrors of the nuclear age. An explosion at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant released dangerous levels of radioactive material over Europe large sections of Ukraine were left uninhabitable. Thousands of people had to be evacuated, while countless suffered from health issues as a result of the disaster. It was the worst nuclear accident in history. Gorbachev was horrified by what had happened, and it only heightened his desire to abolish nuclear weapons. He said to the Politburo, quote, imagine what a nuclear war would mean for Europe. All of this pushed Gorbachev to want to forge an agreement with the United States, hoping to reduce the threat and the cost of an arms race. Gorbachev and Reagan would have another chance. They had scheduled a summit in October of 1986 at Reykjavik, Iceland. The hopes for a new world, free of nuclear destruction, rested on a positive outcome at the meeting. That story, and the end of the Cold War, is the subject of the next episode of This American President. This American President is produced by myself, Richard Lim, and Michael Neal. A special thanks to Jennifer Mazella, Kolyo Vanchev, and Melina Spatharis for their help 
in producing this episode. If you like what you've been hearing, you can help us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our show. We're a proud partner of Evergreen Podcasts. Check out evergreenpodcasts.com for more shows you might enjoy. For more information about President Reagan, check out Strategies of Containment by John Lewis Gaddis, The Rebellion of Ronald Reagan by James Mann, Reagan's Secret War by Martin and Annalise Anderson, The Triumph of Improvisation by James Graham Wilson, and Crusader by Paul Kenger. I'm Richard Lim. We're back next time with more This American President. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.